Hi, and welcome to my podcast. I'm your host, Jason, and you found a fun and secret time capsule from my baby son. Each episode, I sit down and chat with a special guest about friendships, pop culture, parenting, and whatever strikes my fancy. Really, the end goal is to make sure that when my son does eventually discover this, he's thoroughly embarrassed. In the meantime, I'm not quite sure where each episode or where the show is going, but getting there should be half the fun. All right. Well, welcome back to not even welcome back. Um, hello and welcome to Half of the Fun Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. Uh, today, we're uh, joined by an old friend and colleague of mine, uh, Zach. Uh, Zach teaches psychology at the University of Akron and uh, conducts research on men and masculinities. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me, Jason. Really appreciate it. No problem. Did I, did I pronounce Ak- Akron okay? Yeah, I'm trying to work on my Midwest accent out here, Akron. Yeah, and if if you're from here, it's much more like Akron. But uh, why, don't, why don't we stick with Akron? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Zach, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is, first of all, uh, definitely an old friend. I certainly attended your bachelor party. The funny photos will be going up on the website. Um, but particularly, you uh, are involved um, both in those studies of uh, men and masculinity, uh, you also run the website or Minds and Men, that organization. So I really wanted to talk to you a little bit more about what you're involved in in terms of study. Could you, uh, for folks not familiar with your work, tell me just pretty quickly about uh, what you're, what you do? Yeah, yeah. I'm part of a research team at the University of Akron that studies masculinities. And just to note, it's masculinities plural. Because gotcha. part of our effort is um, is to expand what it means to be a man and what definitions of masculinity look like for new generations and, uh, and within different cultural contexts. So our work focuses on um, two things. Number one, kind of how quote-unquote traditional senses of masculinity relate to different health outcomes. My Mm -hmm. research and practice is in uh, counseling psychology. And number two is how can we redefine masculinities to be more adaptive? Uh, We don't take the mindset that gender identity is something that um, can be abolished. It's important to a lot of people. And at the same time, we want it to be helpful for us. So we've been able to um, consult with everybody from the Broadway show Kinky Boots uh, to the folks at Dove and Axe who are really trying to promote progressive ways of thinking about masculinity in their products too. So um, there's starting to starting to be a demand for things like expanding what it means to be a man and happy to be a social science researcher who addresses maybe how we can go about that. Interesting. So how did you choose to get into that topic? I know when we um, lived in the same city, that was something you were interested in. But can you tell me a little bit about your, your in, why you decided to pursue a PhD in this type of program? Yeah, so clinically, my experience has been centered on issues that overwhelmingly, um, disproportionately affect men. So substance use, uh, sexual assault and violence, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, um, not to say women don't have problems with the things I'm talking about, but they do disproportionately affect men. And you see this with um, the Me Too movement, for example, is a lot of times the perpetrator is going to be someone who's a man. And this stems from, and you see this a lot in a lot of news articles right now, but it's our conceptions of masculinity perpetuate a culture that um, 
that doesn't do things like regulate anger very well. And then things like anger turn to aggression, turn to violence, and you throw in some entitlement and some patriarchy, and we have really slippery slopes to, um, to ways that people are identifying with their gender and acting on it that aren't adaptive or helpful for us to be better men, better husbands, better fathers, better humans. That is awesome. So there is a lot of intersectionality that I'm I'm hearing both in terms of culture, you know, what do we define as culture? What do we as a culture define as masculine or masculinities? Um, certainly talk about uh, a lot of different things there about the different identities that in terms of, you know, parenthood, in terms of all sorts of things like that. So let's dive right in. Um, tell me a little bit more about your work with uh, Kinky Boots. Yes, yeah, so we did a project um, with the marketing team from the Kinky Boots Broadway musical who uh, came to our research lab at the University of Akron and said, hey, how do we promote the Kinky Boots musical as, um, as something in addition to a story about drag queens? So we looked at it from a father-son relationship perspective and did two studies. Uh, number one was how do men, if you give them a measure of what we call quote unquote traditional masculinity ideology. So conceptualizing masculinity as things maybe our, our fathers or grandfathers might've thought of as masculine, like restricting your emotions or uh, being dominant in relationships or having proclivities for violence, things like this. Um, how did men who identified with those things have particular health outcomes related to their expectations of their fathers. So say, for example, my father expected me to really restrict my emotions. Would that be related later in life to, you know, positive, negative health outcomes? Um, the other piece of the study was qualitative, where we um, had folks fill in the blank on a couple of different questions about what kinds of impacts their father's expectations had on their own self-conceptions. And overwhelmingly what we found with both these studies is that folks who were kind of expected to be this really restrictive, uh, strict masculinity conception of, let's say, our forefathers um, – had a lot of really negative health outcomes later in life, things like addiction, things like not seeking help, not seeking medical attention, um, things like worse relationship satisfaction. And um, the qualitative results really kind of buffered some of those findings is that um, there seems to be this call for men saying, the way that I was raised to conceptualize masculinity is not working for me, but I don't really have an alternative. And so what we saw is that folks who had fathers who really expressed kind of an authentic and healthy vision of what it means to be a man for their sons and for those sons to really take that to heart and say, I can be whoever it is I want to be and I can pursue whatever kind of gender identity uh, fits for me. Um, those ultimately related to better outcomes in the end. So. The Kinky Boots folks took that research and used it from a marketing standpoint to broaden their uh, viewer base for Kinky Boots. But I think there's a lot of health implications that we can take from the lessons we learned from those studies. Oh, were you able to view Kinky Boots multiple times as part of your study? <laughs> yeah, I wish I got to do the do the dance with the bigwigs in New York City, but um, it was a uh, 
the guy I work with who's retiring, who was the PI on the project, was the only person who got to get all the benefits. So, Boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, he's retiring, so hopefully the shoes will fit on my feet here soon. <laughs> Excellent. That's the whole reason you got into the PhD, just to see the free Broadway shows and get That's free axe spray, it. maybe? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, get some... Get some pro. I mean, ethically, of course. You know. Of course, in a, with <laughs> purely within an ethical framework. Um, I think this statement, uh, when I was kind of skimming the freely available, freely available articles, uh, or about that, um, about your article, was this concept of um, authentic self concepts and healthy gender identity. Mm-hmm. Do you want to? There's a lot. Do you want to unpack that in terms of what what that means? Definitely. Yeah. I think uh, what feminism has done for women is not a movement that we've had in a parallel way with men and masculinity. Let me tell you what I mean by that is that um, I think what feminism has done a great job of doing is saying what it means to be a woman is expanded than a really kind of strict and traditional definition. And I think what we're seeing is that a movement like that needs to happen for men. Because this restrictive sense of what it means to be quote unquote masculine, um, it really limits our potential to live healthy and authentic lives. And what we see theoretically is that men, time and time again, if they see it as a zero sum game of choosing either I'm going to do something that's healthy or masculine, if those, if that's a dichotomous choice for them, mm-hmm. we see men often choosing, well, I'm going to kind of double down on this outdated sense of masculinity, even if it means worse outcomes or, um, or feeling like I'm not being myself. So ultimately, I think the vision here is for us to see a middle path where I don't have to choose between some outdated version of masculine norms in a particular group or context in order for me to feel masculine or feel like a man. What what is authentic to myself can and should be the same thing that's authentic to uh, my gender and what other people think my gender should be too. That is really fascinating. So you we talk a lot about masculinities or kind of this concept of 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 and you've talked about multiple masculinities. Yeah. You, has any of your studies di- as someone who is a person of color, I'm always curious about how that lens is viewed in terms of masculinities within different like people, communities of color within America. Is that something that your research has touched into a little bit? Yeah. Um, and that's where qualitative research has been really helpful for us when we ask men what it means to be a man within a particular group or within a particular kind of set of intersectional identities. Uh, how does it look different? Um, and how do people experience it or conceptualize it in different ways, depending on the confluence of particular sets of intersection, um, intersectionality. So, um, for example, um, there's what we call the person-centered approach in men and masculinities research in psychology that takes the standpoint that um, that masculinity, quote-unquote, in and of itself is not harmful. Um if it intersects with other cultural identities or variables in positive ways. So let's say, um, so it all comes down to to context and situation and less on whatever the particular quote unquote masculine norm is. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. So 
let's say we have a man who identifies as Asian American and as a cisgender heterosexual man. Mm-hmm. Um, if he, if it's promoted within, let's say, like a family environment for that guy to restrict emotions in a particular case or with particular people in his family, um, then as long as he has a healthy outlet for emotional expressivity in another type of group or set of relationships in his life, then mm-hmm. maybe in that particular family environment, it can be adaptive for him to, um, for him to adhere to this uh, restrictive emotionality view of what masculinity might be as long as he can kind of code switch and, um, and do other forms of emotionality in other relationships or contexts. Another example that we see as uh, kind of reshaping what a norm might look like when you intersect with culture is um, the concepts of machismo and caballerismo mm-hmm. in Latino American men um, is that caballerismo really focuses on the sense of caring that um, that may be traditional hegemonic white European American norms hasn't embraced in like, you know, the Clint Eastwood Western conception of what it means to be a good partner or dad is that um, there's a sense of caring that should inherently come with what it means to be a man and taking care of your family in more than just kind of a patriarchal monetary providing way should be a part of your gender identity. And, um, and I think, Latino American culture has that somewhat built in. Um, so we definitely see kind of how these different identities influence each other. And I think the take home point here uh, is that it's up to individual men um, to say, here are the ways in which I see different identities intersecting and then take a look at whatever the outcomes are of enacting a particular norm and say, does whatever that outcome um, is whatever that outcome is matching up with what I want that outcome to be when it's influenced by these different intersecting identities. Awesome. Yeah, you know, certainly both with my own background and certainly uh, someone who identifies as an Asian American, um, certainly I've been interested in, in how ways that maybe popular culture or just mainstream culture has um, has done to shape what American, what Asian masculinity is or the lack thereof, or kind of trying to what I, I think in terms of emasculate um, kind of Asian American culture, certainly both in terms of restricting what Chinese immigrants could do in terms of work. Um, So beyond the railroad, that was um, laundry or cooking or types of roles that were traditionally done by women back in those days, Mm. or just even in popular culture where, if you saw Asian Americans at all, which you rarely would, um, both through laws and things like that, rarely seeing um, people of color and particularly Asians uh, and Asian Americans within with that beyond a very narrow narrow stereotype of being like a nerd or someone who does kung fu um, or someone in yellow face like in. Um, even surprisingly recent 80s films. And it just, to me, I think growing up, uh, not having kind of these role models or even just conceptions of what what even masculinity or what I could be what was definitely challenging for me later on in terms of kind of navigating my own masculinity. Yeah, exactly. That uh, um, That's a really powerful 
narrative there. And we see it so often in the U.S. is that there's this impossible choice of saying of a lot of guys thinking that they have to make this um, this kind of false decision between um, or erroneous decision between what a hundred year old European American stereotype of a set of masculine norms that we know are related to all kinds of harmful outcomes. And then whatever their authentic identity might be. And I think what the overarching problem here is, is that when that strict set of norms that are kind of imposed on a society only align with a majority group or a particular um, set of norms, then we've already limited the potential for diversity and inclusion and freedom and equality and acceptance and kind of fill in the blank on the buzzword that we want to use here. But the point being is that we can't have these restrictive sets of norms for men uh, because it's antithetical to progress and equality. So I hear you. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about, well, I guess a couple of things, a couple of questions. Um, the first would be how, as you've really got into the study and more into the program, how do you feel like it's changed your own, I mean, I, okay to share on the podcast, you're happily married. Uh, so uh, how do you feel like that's, as you've gotten more and more into your research and projects and, and teaching, how do you feel like that's shaped your own concept of, of, of marriage or your relationship with your wife? Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of times in relationships, there, um, number one, I would say things should always be a two-way street. And what I mean by that is we have this conception that treat other, um, excuse me, we have this conception that treat other people the way you want to be treated is the highest ideal. And there's a fatal flaw in that logic in that if I treat other people the way I want to be treated, then I'm assuming that other person is me. And if anybody has been in a relationship, they know that two people are different. So the point being here is that um, part of me being a good partner is being able to respond to the ways in which uh, my spouse is similar or different from me and knowing how and in what ways I can be there for them in ways that might not be how I would want somebody to be there for me. So give you an example is let's say, let's say I come home from a long day and my wife says, how's your day? I'm like, good, because I'm kind of an introvert and want to do my thing for a little bit and we'll talk about it later. Um, if her need actually in that way was um, asking how my day was because that's a way that she shows how to care and she wants to be involved in all the different aspects of my life, then in order for me to, um, to be a good partner for her, I kind of got to share some parts of my day, even if it, uh, in that moment, wasn't the thing that I wanted to do on the first list of self-care priorities that I had for the evening. But it's, it's being able to share some of um, how we're similar, how we're different, and then respond in different ways based on the, not what I think someone else should be, um, but who they actually are. Um, so I think that kind of authentic responsiveness is just going to be so key in relationships. When it comes to men, 
I think we have lived in a society that has perpetuated patriarchy and entitlement for so long that a lot of times um, through it's it's almost like an unconscious manipulation. Guys, you treat other people the way you want to be treated as the only form of truth. So it says if, if my partner um, is somehow different from me, then they're wrong for being different. And that's false logic is we got to we got to kind of overcome that irrational belief and say, no, no, just because there's a history of patriarchy and entitlement of guys getting what they want and dictating what is true doesn't mean that that's how it should be or is in a current relationship with two equals. So uh, certainly you're pretty far into your project or pretty far into your studies. And I feel like certainly like Me Too and all these other types of movements have certainly exploded within the last year. Um, how has that affected your research or messaging or what kind of opportunities does that allow you to do now that it's part of a much larger national conversation? You bet. Yeah. And um, I'm just so thankful for the Me Too movement to giving voice to experiences, perspectives um, that have been silenced for so many years because of um, backlash related to perpetuating some of the problematic norms that we're talking about here. Um, and so not only is Me Too an opportunity for those that have been marginalized and silenced, but I think it's an opportunity for men to look in the mirror and say, even if I, um, even if a guy isn't somebody who says, yeah, I have a domestic violence conviction, that doesn't mean that these, um, that these stories aren't a part of our lives. Um, one analogy that I'll use a lot of times with guys is that um, I think we take a, a false, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. And if we only fix stuff when it was broken, then we would have a lot of stuff on the verge of being broken that we'd just be running into the ground. So if we take a look at who we are and say, I don't have to be a broken man in crisis in order to want to be better, <laughs> then now we can really kind of take some responsibility for saying, all right, this is a slippery slope here. Every time, uh, you know, I, I don't say something when somebody makes an inappropriate joke that's sexist or, um, or if I don't respond to, um, you know, a stranger that I see catcalling somebody else or when, um, you know, when I'm out and some guy is putting his hand on the lower back of every single woman on the way to him going to the restroom without their consent, right? These are all the same slippery slope incidents of us, um, of us seeing opportunities where we can step up and say, Hey, um, there are little ways that we can encourage communication and consent that just because I don't have somebody that's in my friend group who was convicted of domestic violence doesn't mean that these issues don't affect us because the numbers would tell you that, um, that one out of every five women that I meet or so, um, will have been affected, um, by things like sexual assault. So, we got to take some ownership and say, just because I personally might not be broken in the ways that we're talking about, doesn't mean that these aren't all issues we should be addressing. Um, what Minds and Men does is it gives us a perspective and a launch point that says uh, we can promote positive senses of healthy gender identities without abolishing the conception of gender entirely. So I think what a lot of um, 
really extremist social science researchers have said is the solution to everything we're talking about is androgyny, is get rid of gender. Gender is the problem. Um, and I would argue that a particular conception of gender is the problem, that men are entitled to dictate truth. Like, that's the problem. And the point being is that I think there are ways that we can promote freedom and equality for other people as congruent with gender identities in men. But until we figure out how to do those things in alignment with each other, I think you're going to end up with this dichotomy of people saying, well, these are women's problems. And when in actuality, this is all, uh, it's all the same conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so moving on to fatherhood. So I've certainly reflected and um, a lot about as my son gets older, how do I be intentional in terms of modeling behavior in terms of making sure I'm, you know, raising a good feminist son, um, that he is comfortable in his own masculinity. And I, and I, beyond trying to model behavior as best I can, I, I feel like we're, I feel like I'm working a lot against a lot of just dominant baked in popular culture. So what, what kind of advice can you give me, um, in terms of, as I continue being a parent that is trying his best? You bet. Yeah, I think it's it's bringing in the confidence of this authentic, healthy, masculine conception that can override some of the outdated stereotypes that we face is every time that we stand up when the river's flowing in an opposite direction. Um, this is the old Gloria Steinem quote, um, one of the legendary feminists in social science research is that every time you stand up, it gives other people permission to do the same. And so anytime, um, anytime a father really just affirms that a son's authentic self is masculine in and of itself, I think we're doing that. So uh, being involved in whatever a uh, son's authentic interests are um, is going to perpetuate that. Um, and knowing that there's kind of a, um, there's an underlying unconscious confidence that comes with saying, um, that not everybody is going to, um, respond positively to differences, but that if that's the ultimate world that we want to live in, where we don't see difference as negative, um, then we have to be able to, um, to affirm our sons to live authentic lives um, and be their authentic selves, even when um, there are social norms that might violate that. Um, the, the point being here, and this is kind of the larger, I think this is where we need to head, is, um, is that evolutionarily speaking, the, the neuropsych part of this is that the brain perceives difference on an initial unconscious level as a threat. And it's our job as humans, not reptiles or animals, to be able to override that threat response. So when my brain sees something that's different and it says different equals threat, our job is to override that response in our brain because that's actually the part of our cortexual functioning that's unique to humanity that mm -hmm. is different from, you know, my dog or um, pet snake. And, you know, that reptilian brain that says difference equals worse or equals threat. Um, is actually not the key to unlocking our potential as as humans or as men. Um, so it's being able to override impulses sometimes, and uh, sometimes doing the hard thing is the right thing. 
Awesome. Well, uh, that were all the questions that I had for you, except maybe uh, oh, very important question. Uh, are you still cheering for the Browns? <laughs> or what, yeah. what teams are you rooting for now that you're up in, uh, in Ohio? God, I hope I don't root for the Browns. You know, I got to <laughs> tell you, the, uh, the <laughs> got a chance to do some uh, consulting work with uh, Terry Bowden, a pretty famous college football coach around these parts. And mm -hmm. um, he told me the story about how he was talking with the Browns coach and, um, and Hugh Jackson, the Browns coach said, God, if we win, uh, if we win one game in a season again, I'm going to go jump in the lake. And, uh, and then the next year they won no games. So he didn't have to jump in the lake, you know, cause they didn't win one game. <laughs> so, you know, he at least got to dodge the lake. Jump. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'll be a Seahawks fan. Um, I, I'm still close at heart to, uh, Pacific Northwest culture. So go Hawks. That's great. Have you, how do you feel about it? Like there's been a lot of roster turnover this, this off season. <laughs> how are you feeling about that? Man, you can call it not a rebuild. That kind of looks like a rebuild to me. <laughs> we're uh, we're going to see how this plays out. I just, this NFL schedule just came out and I'm calling an eight game, uh, eight win season here. So I don't think that's going to be enough to even get us in the playoffs, but we'll see as long as they, uh, as long as they give me somewhere to watch out here, I might end up at a game in the Midwest. Somewhere. Right on. Uh, and then I guess just another quick question would be, so you, uh, certainly grown up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, how's it been living in the Midwest? What's, <laughs> what's been challenges or surprises or, or I think positively, what have been some good things? Yeah, you know, uh, um, I think the number of days that it rains in Seattle is uh, the number of days where you have no idea what the weather is going to do in Cleveland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think uh, I think in the same 24-hour forecast the other day, we had snow, a tornado warning, hail, and flood watch all in the same <laughs> all in the same like day. So hey. Shout out to the PNW for moderate climates, but good luck with you all uh, avoiding that massive mega quake or whatever they're predicting here in the next decade. So. Eh, that's why I've got earthquake insurance on my house. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess to wrap up, well, first of all, do you have any, uh, let's see what time is it? Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> yeah. What are, give me some of your life lessons. How do you, uh, how do you kind of bridge that gap between authentic and healthy and masculine as a, as a father, as a spouse, as a. Yeah. You know, it's been something that uh, certainly I've worked with a lot with, with, with Allison, my partner in terms of um, being able to communicate in a healthy manner or just uh, being able to express my emotions in, in kind of better outlets, I think has been something that we have worked on a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful that we've had some time to kind of be as a couple and kind of figure those things out um, before we embarked on having a child. Um, certainly these movements like Me Too and just the prevalence of kind of the, the misogyny and the patri patriarchy have certainly um, opened my eyes and given me a lot of perspective and just trying to be thoughtful or just trying to kind of like you mentioned scrape away these lizard brain or really subconscious underlying assumptions of masculinity or um 
how to be attractive to, you know, to women or, or the opposite sex or kind of these things that I guess on a conscious level, I know, but on like this, this lower level, I'm like, oh, like this is, this is terrible. <laughs> what mm. kind of these, these assumptions that I'm making and, or, or things that I'm doing, I think, um, what's been really great and that I'm really excited about is that, um, um, my partner is highly educated in a professional field um, and that she is a, a wonderful, strong, independent woman. Um, so just hopefully modeling just a good relationship balance and just how much in terms of balancing chores, kind of balancing emotional labor into in terms of scheduling sick day, being trying to be an active participant in, in my son's sick days or scheduling doctor's appointments or finding babysitters and kind of all this hidden work that a lot of female partners do. I'm trying to take that on and be very conscious right now of, of doing, of picking up that, of trying to be an equal partner in that type of labor too. Um, so hopefully that there's a strong foundation as we move forward and he becomes a more self-conscious little human being that uh, we've got that good foundation in terms of expectations of, of what being a good partner and is. Yeah, those stereotypes affect us all, don't they? What, who's supposed to do what and why are fathers, you know, you do any, I feel like there's the, you do anything positive and everybody's like, oh my gosh, you're the greatest dad in the world. And you're like, I'm not even pulling half my weight on this thing. Why mm -hmm. is somebody giving me kudos for, you know? Not to say you're not doing half. I'm sure you're doing half, right, Jason? Well, I think I think I'm doing half, but <laughs> as many studies have told me, I'm probably not. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so just trying to do that, and you know, when I was on leave, it was um, it was really hard because that's something that not a lot of men take advantage of, uh, both in terms of again concepts of masculinity and also just this patriarchal work environment that we're in, where there you expect to the women to stay home, right, and then just how hard it is for some folks to to go on leave that there isn't a lot of support that a lot of stay-at-home parent groups or new parent groups are targeted towards women so it felt great to be able to have support for my work to go on leave and to take my full leave but it felt super isolating and that there weren't a lot of stay-at-home dads to like share that kind of journey with me and that was super isolating and 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 really lonely yeah, I think we got to step up for each other, you know, and, and make, uh, we have to promote, I'll, I'll give you a story. I was abroad, done a decent amount of traveling. Um, and I, I remember seeing, I was on a train in Copenhagen and I saw this dad with a stroller, um, just straight up. He, it's a super packed train and he's got his kid in a stroller and he picks up the entire stroller um, walks onto the stand only train and just holds the kid in the stroller above his head for the <laughs> ride. And I was just like, that guy is just like doing his fatherhood thing <laughs> in a way and that he's just owning it. Right. And I mm -hmm. think, I think that's what we got to do is, is be able to find ways where we can own it and then support each other owning it as dads. So no, Hey, keep fighting the good fight out there. Man. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, um, Certainly, I was part of a, a, I mean, I'm really excited that Seattle has that kind of that mandatory or um, universal family medical leave act thing going on. So there will be paid uh, family leave in the city of Seattle. So I'm hoping that encourages more uh, dads to take leave. Um, Allison r reminded me, this is a half remembered thing of like some Scandinavian country that had mandatory or 
paid family leave, but not a lot of men were taking it. So because of stigmas and all the reasons that I mentioned, so they linked the mother's leave to dad's leave where um, (laughs) they couldn't get the full leave unless the dad took his full leave too. And then suddenly you saw a lot more dads doing this and how it became much more culturally acceptable and a lot more of these systems sprung up because there was now a population of dads that are taking leave. So I will have to ask about that. I think it's Norway, actually. And that sounds um, that sounds right. I'll tell you, I was in a club in Norway one time, <laughs> and I saw um, I saw this guy. It was '80s night at this club, all right. And there's this middle-aged dude who's in like flannel and jeans, look like you know trucker guy X, who is on the dance floor jamming by himself to like a virgin, and. Um, <laughs> And I'm, I'm looking at this guy and I'm with some locals and I'm, I'm kind of laughing at him and I'm like, look at the guy. And this local kind of looks at me, gives me this funny look. And, um, and he goes, yeah, pretty cool. He's just kind of, you know, essentially like being his authentic self. <laughs> I was about to say like, he's, 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 yes. Like how awesome is that? And I kind of, I had to catch myself, right. And be like, oh my gosh, I'm totally imposing this value onto this guy who I should actually be jealous of that he has the confidence and authentic identity so prominent um, in his kind of self-actualized self that he can just be jamming to like a virgin by himself on the dance floor. So which I, uh, is that's also my whole problem, yeah, right? For yeah. sure. And that's also an excellent karaoke song. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. Oh, my goodness. Well, I do need to wrap up here, Zach, but I want to give you time to um, promote your stuff. So uh, you've given us a lot of nuggets on something that's really uh, hopefully a big stuff to chew on. If folks want to learn more about your work, uh, where should they be going? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, My whole shtick, and I don't know if this podcast is representative of it, but but I want to deliver psychology to, um, to folks who aren't getting doctorates in it, right? Is this is the psychology of people. And um, with my research in masculinities, um, my website is mindsandmen.org, M-I-N-D-S and men.org. Spell out the word and, um, but we're all about, uh, we're all about promoting positive senses of people's selves and uh, repackaging psych research that two people write or read into ways that we can all learn and live from. Um, so check it out, mindsandmen.org, and uh, do a lot of consulting, do a lot of writing, um, do some life coaching, and uh, whatever you need, happy to be a support and a service, embracing positive, authentic masculinity. Terrific. And I will certainly link to that both in our blog page as well as the description of this episode, uh, if I remember to edit it in. Editor's note, edit it in. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man, and I I really appreciate chatting with you. So I'm going to stop the recording now so that I can gossip with you more. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and on our host, Anchor FM. Music used for this podcast includes Live Wire by Steve Combs, With a Whimper by Josh Woodward, and Olivia by Heisen. You can email us at halfthefunpodcast at gmail.com and send us voicemails through the Anchor FM app. You can check out more photos and commentary about this episode on our website, halfthefun.fun. That's halfthefun.fun. And like us on Facebook. Want to be on the show? Drop us a line. See you next week.